Hey, deserving listeners. Today, I'm going to do a follow-up to the enmeshment episode that I did a while back. Famous patron Lyndon actually emailed me several questions that are very intelligent, and I thought it'd be a good opportunity to expand and elaborate on this idea of enmeshment, which is a very important concept in family therapy that we all use. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor in marriage and family therapy. I thought I'd read his questions and answer them. But first, let me review enmeshment. Uh, I did a whole episode, but let me quickly review what 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 it means. Um, basically, when we look at families, we see three main categories of family styles or even relationship styles. We have enmeshed, we have disengaged, and we have healthy or adaptive uh, and that kind of thing. So Healthy and adaptive families, these families are, they have close bonds, but they're flexible. There's a balance between the needs of the family and the needs of the individuals. And there's relatively low anxiety about distance and closeness. Um, for the full explanation of all this, listen to the full episode on enmeshment. But um, healthy relation, healthy families operate, they're, they're close, but they're flexible they understand the needs of the family. They understand the needs of the individual people. Everyone t- tends to get their needs met. Uh, it's sort of a, uh, an optimal way. And, and there's flexibility. Like when people want to separate, that's allowed to happen. When they want to get close, that's allowed to happen. In enmeshed families, these families are over-involved. There's a pressure to conform. There's anxiety about distance. And they are inflexibly close, meaning that there's a requirement to be close, and if people try to occasionally move away from the family emotionally or physically or whatever, then there's a reaction against that. And in disengaged families, these families are inflexibly distant. They tend to be indifferent towards each other. They're detached. They're non-responsive. They don't really notice each other's needs, let alone respond to each other's needs. And when they want to be close and they want some attention, they want to reach out to each other, then the system usually reacts against that. So some people confuse enmeshment with closeness. There's a big difference between a family that's very close in a healthy way and a family that's enmeshed. So because uh, some families are, are they're very, very close. They talk a lot, and, and uh, sometimes people will confuse that. Well, they look enmeshed to me. But it's hard to—the the distinction is, is it flexible and is it healthy and are people getting their needs met? Because in a close relationship family, there's, there's good bonds. Um, they might be really heavily involved in each other's lives. They might talk on the phone every day. They might, you know, always go to each other's— birthday parties and all that kind of thing. But, you know, members of the family are free to occasionally move away and there's freedom of thought and there's not a lot of control on the individuals. In enmeshed families, they'll look very close from the outside because there's a lot of involvement. You might even be kind of jealous of how much contact they have with each other. But when you actually get to know the experience of the individuals, there's an inflexibility to it. And... Uh, there's a requirement that one must conform to the uh, family rules, so to speak. Now, the reason why 
uh, families will resort to enmeshment or disengagement for that matter is because they're trying to preserve the love and the closeness that they feel that they can attain. So due to past traumas for everyone involved in a family, they believe that in order to have some closeness, which everyone needs, they have to establish firm rules of conformity around closeness and rigidity around that. And that uh, movements towards individuation is a scary thing for them based on their past experiences. So uh, usually there's good reasons why families will uh, resort to enmeshment as a way of trying to get their needs met. You know, a lot of times people will look to enmeshment, they'll be like, oh, yeah, you know, my mother, she was such an enmeshed person and she had no boundaries and, you know, she was just always controlling and never letting anyone individuate. Well, I get it. It's frustrating, but there's a reason why the mother was like that. Usually, though, what happens over time is the family will adopt the parent style of relating, whether it be healthy, adaptive, close, enmeshed, or disengaged. So signs of enmeshment, again, very briefly, are the parents will know a lot about the child's lives. Um, It could be a sign of closeness, but it also could be a sign of enmeshment. Another sign is that the children will have very few secrets. At least they'll, they'll be allowed to have very few secrets. The, the parents might have high anxiety about what the child is doing. The parents will often think about the children. Again, this could be a, an example of a close, adaptive, healthy family. It could also be a sign of an enmeshed family. The parents also will not like closed doors or closed doors or restrictions of access like passwords and locks and this kind of thing. This is usually only an indication of an enmeshed family. Not all enmeshed families will experience that, but if we see that like you are not allowed to have your own privacy, this is usually a sign of an enmeshment. The parents might be very anxious when there is a disagreement between parents and children or between anyone in the family. So whenever you have anxiety about, shall we say, uh, trivial disagreements, like, you know, what your favorite movie is or what a memory was. Like one of the things you'll see in an Amesh family is that they'll have a hard time agreeing to disagree. They'll have a hard time uh, having a different take on it on a past experience. Like in, in an enmeshed family, say the son is like, um, you know, I remember Christmas 1955 and we did this. And the mother is like, Oh no, 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 that's not what happened. And in a healthy family, they'll, it won't be great to disagree on that, but they'll be like, well, I guess we both just remember that differently. Let's move on. In an enmeshed family, that'll be a threat because it's a, it's a, indication of difference, which is very threatening to an enmeshed family. To an enmeshed family, when there's the slightest bit of difference or disagreement or, you know, individuation, it's because of past traumas to these individuals, it's it's an indication that the family is going to fly apart and you're going to lose everyone. This isn't a conscious thought, but it's, it's you know, how people react. Um. Parents and and other people in the family in an enmeshed family will also use guilt and shame a lot to shape other people's behavior. They might say things like, you know, how could you do this to me? Like, say the daughter gets bad grades and the parents are upset about that. 
uh, in an enmeshed family, there might be an impulse from the parents to be like, to take it personally. Like, I can't believe you would humiliate me like this by getting bad grades. Or I can't believe that you would get bad grades after I told you to get good grades for so long. How could you do this to me? It, you know, there's a lot of taking it personally. The parents, and again, this isn't, all these signs aren't universal to all enmeshed. It's just like some of the signs you might see. Another sign of an enmeshed family is the parents might do a lot of negotiation with the children. They might accommodate a little too much. They might plead with the child. Instead of drawing a firm boundary with the child, the parents will try to plead, you know, please, can you please pick up your toys for me? And that's another sign of enmeshment. Because, again, the reason is, is that the parent who believes that individuation and difference is a threat, uh, when when you're parenting a child, there are moments where you just have to draw a boundary and the kid isn't going to like it. You're going to say, look, son, you're 13 years old. Your curfew is 10 o'clock and that's just the way it's going to be. And I know you want to go to the party and the party goes till midnight. But in this house, your curfew's at 10 and that's just how it is. And um, that's what we believe to be age appropriate for you. And I know you disagree with me and I know your friends are allowed to go out to midnight, but that's just not how we're going to do things here. I hear your points. It's just not going to happen. You got to be home at 10. That's what, when you're older, you can have a later curfew. In that moment, your kid uh, is possibly going to be real upset and is going to slam the door and is, is going to be like, you're idiot. I hate you. You guys are idiots. And in that moment, there's a separation, right? There's the parents who believe one thing. There's the kid who believes another. And never the twain shall meet until that kid grows up and has their own kids. And if you're healthy and adaptive, you're able to withstand that difference. If you're enmeshed, you're not able to withstand that difference. And so you will, uh, as a parent, be very anxious about that. And so you'll go to the kid and you'll say, Son, you know, you got to understand where I'm coming from. Please, understand. you know, there's inherent, there, usually in a healthy adaptive family, there is going to be moments like that, particularly between teens and their parents, that you're just not going to see eye to eye. And you have, as a family, you have to be able to withstand that, that at times. Again, it's that flexibility to move away and move, move towards each other. To the enmeshed family, they can't stand that. They'll either plead or they'll give in. They'll just be like, okay, fine, you can go out till midnight. Uh, another sign is the family might engage in passive aggression, like giving the silent treatment or secretly violating the child's privacy when the child tries to individuate, like breaking into the child's Facebook account, this kind of thing. Um, there's also in enmeshed families, you'll, you'll often see this, is there's a requirement for frequent communication. So in a close, healthy, adaptive family, there will be a lot of communication. But in an enmeshed family, that frequent communication is a requirement. And the, the family members will be ambivalent about that. On one hand, they like the frequent communication because they do enjoy the closeness. But they also do also feel this requirement, this like, uh, you better email me every day. You better call me every day or else. And there'll be guilt trips and all these kinds of things if you don't follow that rule. The other thing to point out is because sometimes people say like, well, I kind of feel like my family was enmeshed, but you know what? I haven't talked to my family in five years. I drew you know really firm boundaries with them a long time ago, so I'm not enmeshed. So uh, 
yeah, there's a, and the other thing is you can't fit all human experiences into these small little categories. But one of the ways of looking at that scenario where you have a lot of signs of enmeshment, but there are some people who have, you know, basically uh, removed themselves from, from the family um, enmeshment is that the, the distancing from the family is a coping with the enmeshment. You know, the enmeshment is creating so much trouble for the individual that they have reacted to that enmeshment by separating, you know, themselves physically and emotionally, or not emotionally, but physically and, you know, and communication-wise. But often, emotionally, the person is still enmeshed with the family members. The family is still in their head, if you will. Anyway, listen to my full episode. Now, children of enmeshed families will often grow up with at least some of the following things, like a lack of self. Again, listen to my other episodes about lack of self. Dependency, preoccupied attachment, borderline personality, anxiety about distance from others, paranoia about the thoughts of others, low value on privacy and boundaries between you and other people, low self-esteem, Repressed rage, this is a big one, uh, not always present, but when you emerge from an, an enmeshed family, a lot of times you have tremendous repressed rage because there, when you're in an enmeshed family, anger is not acceptable. And so you can't assert yourself. You're, you're constantly forced to conform to the enmeshment. And the only way you can survive as a child is if you essentially – cut yourself off from the ability to express your anger and all that anger builds. And so these people have just a tremendous amount of rage that can either manifest in very explicit ways through violence or through very uh, illicit, inexplicit, wait, wait, what's the opposite of explicit? (laughs) Uh, Illicit ways? Um, Inexplicit, anyway, secret ways such as passive aggression, like uh, drinking a lot or stealing or lying, you know, or, you know, having a secret journal that you talk shit about everyone in, um, or cheating on people. Also, people from enmeshed families can often be immature or be irresponsible. Again, listen to my full episode on enmeshment, but let's get into famous patron Linden's questions here. There's a lot. His first question is, what strategies do people from enmeshed families use to get their needs met? Well, this is a tough one to answer briefly because, you know, we have lots of different needs. And again, it's hard to generalize because enmeshed families don't always look the same. But generally speaking, uh, a strategy that's often used is uh, enmeshed people in enmeshed families tend to believe that their needs have to involve their other family members and can't involve other people. So people from enmeshed families often, they feel a dependency on others to meet their needs. They feel like they can't really meet their needs on their own because they were taught uh, from you know age zero to twenty, that uh, if you try to meet your needs on your own, that's selfish or anti-family or something. And so, uh, a lot of times, people from enmeshed families will say, you know, like they're hungry and they're like, "Well, I need to go to dinner with someone, or I need someone to make me the food," or um, they feel sad and they're like, the only way I can be not sad is if my mom makes me feel not sad or something, instead of having a flexibility around maybe looking outside the family or maybe even looking inside the self. Um, You know, I could go on and on, but you have a lot of questions. So let's move on to the next one. What's the difference between enmeshment and diffusion? 
Okay, so I think you're reading uh, some material because I, I didn't. I don't think I talked about diffusion in the other episode, but um, I'm glad you're you're reading about it. Uh, now you're getting into family therapy theory, which and systems theory, which there's a lot of different definitions of these words. But to answer your question, uh, they're essentially the same thing. But diffusion is more of a narrow term. Diffusion refers to the diffusion of boundaries. So we will evaluate family therapists like me uh, uh, boundaries on a scale from uh, diffused, meaning that there's too much, uh, uh, you know, back and forth. The boundary isn't isn't uh, you know helpful, isn't present enough. Uh, and then in the middle, you have healthy and flexible, where it's permeable enough and flexible enough. And then the other end, you have uh, what we call rigid boundaries, meaning that the boundary is inflexibly closed, which is what disengaged families are like. So, uh, dif- so enmeshed families have diffused boundaries is the language we would use. But you could also say that an enmeshed boundary and a diffused boundary are one and the same. And it just kind of depends on the context that's being used. Another question you ask is, how compatible are the concepts of enmeshment and differentiation? So again, I've, I've done episodes on differentiation as well. You can listen to my full episodes on that in the past. Uh, but this is a very you know, astute question because uh, I'm guessing you're like, huh, you've talked about it, it, differentiation before. It kind of sounds like enmeshment. Well, yeah, both concepts come from family theory uh, and also from systems theory. And so, uh, and a lot of the theories relate. But differentiation... So how do I answer this briefly? Because differentiation is a pretty complicated topic. Differentiation has to do with not only boundaries between me and other people, but also the boundary between my thinking uh, guidance system and my emotional guidance system. So, uh, and those are related in terms of like, if I'm differentiated between me and other people, then I tend to be differentiated between my thinking and feeling. And if I'm differentiated between my thinking and feeling, then I'm differentiated between myself and other people. Um, but to answer your question, how compatible are they? They're very compatible. In fact, uh, systems theory people, family therapists, uh, almost all of them will incorporate the concept of enmeshment disengagement with the concepts of differentiation and triangulation. Uh, another question here, do people from enmeshed families seek out people in life who are enmeshed or centrifugal or otherwise diffuse to try to experience a corrective experience? Uh, again, you're really you know, integrating a lot of my uh, episodes into one thing, which is very exciting to me whenever uh, I have a student. You're not a student of mine, but you're a podcast listener, but... Um, when I'm teaching my students and my supervisees and I, I see them pulling together all the different threads of, uh, you know, psychological theory and, and psychotherapy theory into one conceptualization, it means, you know, a very intelligent person is is at play here. And, and I know uh, famous patient Lyndon, you're, you're a very intelligent dude. And so uh, you're doing that. You're, so you're pulling in the psychodynamic idea of a corrective experience with enmeshment and about recreation uh, and, you know, recreation of past relationships um, and also with the repetition compulsion that Freud talked about. So, yeah, um, but it's not always that way. So people from enmeshed families 
will seek, you know, they will tend to try to recreate their past relationships, which were uh, indicative of enmeshment, meaning that they might uh, marry someone who is also enmeshed and they might try to recreate an enmeshed style relationship with their children. To them, it'll look different uh, because they are trying really hard not to create what they went through growing up. But in essence, it will be the same. And that's the tragedy of our psyches is that uh, when we grow up with difficulty, we tend to recreate it even when we're trying really hard not to. And the, and the more difficult the experience we had growing up, the more likely we are to recreate it in a dysfunctional way. So uh, without going into detail on that, you're just going to take my word for it. But yeah, so one of the reasons why we recreate these experiences uh, is because we're trying to create a corrective experience. We're trying to have a new outcome from this, from this new recreation. For example, you have a son who grows up in an enmeshed family. And he felt like his parents were very invasive of him. And he didn't like that. So he grows up and he tries to have good boundaries with people. He meets a woman or let's, let's, let's make him, you know, a gay man. He meets another man and he, uh, his, his gay spouse, his husband is also fairly invasive, but invasive in a different way, a way that he can't really detect as being similar to the way his parents invaded him. It's like, um, I don't know. I can't imagine an example, but just roll with me on that. And unconsciously, what this uh, guy from this enmeshed family is trying to do is he's trying to he's trying to go back to his past, recreating that relationship with a new outcome, so it can correct for the past. Um, but uh, because the he's not really aware of what he's doing, he actually inadvertently recreates what happened in the past, and he just re-traumatizes himself. Now, certainly that's possible. We could imagine that happening. But I would say that that's not um, always the case for sure. A lot of people from enmeshed families actually will match up with people from in, from disengaged families. Uh, this this creates a, a kind of balance. So, you know, someone from an, from an enmeshed family meets someone from a disengaged family. And the two of them balance each other out really well because the enmeshed person really pursues the disengaged person. The disengaged person is now like, wow, I've never felt this amount of love from anyone in my life because this person is so close to me and, you know, is interested in me and, you know, needs me and really reaches out to me in a way that my family never did with me. This feels so good. And to the uh, enmeshed person, they're like, I really like the disengaged person because, you know, they're, they're, they're giving me my space when I need it. And uh, they don't demand things of me all the time. This feels good. And so uh, those two people can fit together in a, in, vo- in a very dysfunctional way at times, but also a very functional way at times. Um, there's nothing dysfunctional about these arrangements. It's just a matter of like how conscious are people of their needs and, and getting those needs met with each other. All right. Another question here from you, famous patron Lyndon, is, how does enmeshment play in cluster B as a causal element or just as an aspect of family life? So he's asking, does enmeshment play a role in development of, say, borderline personality or narcissistic personality? Um, in general, uh, people who were 
people as adults who have borderline or histrionic uh, tend to come from families that had at least some elements of enmeshment. But it's too life is too complicated to draw that much of a connection. People from disengaged families tend to produce narcissistic people. The idea here is is that, um, but you know, when I really think about it, it's it's too hard. One thing I can say is that disengaged families, which is you know the opposite of enmeshed, meaning that the you know, the boundaries are too rigid. People don't really notice each other's needs. They don't turn to each other's needs. Uh, when you are in a disengaged family, the children grow up in an environment, you know, zero, one, two, three years old, realizing that they can't really turn to other people for their, for to get their needs met. People aren't really even noticing their needs. And although they might not be going through abuse, they might be going through abuse, but they might not be. They're just like, you know what? I need to depend on myself. And through the defenses that build up, that can manifest as narcissism. Um, that's what I'll say about that. Uh, you also, but, but to go back to your question, the, the opposite in terms of like enmeshment, does it create borderline? Let me think about that for a second. Um, it certainly can for sure, but you can also develop borderline in a disengaged family as well. I will say that uh, for all people who develop any personality disorder, in all likelihood, the family was either disengaged or enmeshed in some manner. It would be very unusual for someone to to develop personality disorder in a healthy, adaptive, uh, close family. You also ask here, how does enmeshment influence anxiety, shyness, assertiveness, et cetera? Um, yeah, so uh, similar to personality disorders, having anxiety, being shy, uh, having difficulty with assertiveness can certainly be born from enmeshment, but it also can be born from disengagement. Uh, so there's no real correlation for me there. Uh, there might be some research on that, um, so maybe there is a signal there somewhere, but Anecdotally, I don't see really a connection there. I mean, what I will say again, the more unhealthy the family, meaning the more enmeshed or disengaged they are, the more likely you are to develop things like anxiety, shyness, and assertiveness issues. You also ask, how does enmeshment work with attachment? Are they separate universes of theory or can they be interrelated? They're absolutely related. So um, they're often not uh, explicitly discussed in a related way, but when I teach, I always talk about it. I just can't help but to always relate it back to attachment. So when I'm talking about meeting each other's needs, I'm talking often about attachment needs. So you have a family, you have two parents and two kids, and every one of those people, all four of those people have a deep need for attachment from you know minute to minute basis. They want to feel secure. They want to feel like people love them. They want to feel like people notice them. They want to feel like they can reach out to people and get their needs met. They want to, you know, have an exchange of fun or creativity, or they want to cry on someone's shoulder. They want uh, other people to be interested in them and like them. All those needs are swirling around on a constant basis. 
And in a healthy family, they're able to express those needs, make make bids for those needs, and other people will notice uh, most of the time, attune to that, and, you know, really understand those needs and respond accordingly to meet those needs in other people. And all that has to do with attachment needs. And when you have complications in that meeting of needs, uh, or you have fears, deep fears about uh, those needs not being met based on past experiences, you need some way of coping with that. And, and two of the general ways of coping with the fears of not getting your attachment needs met in the family is the enmeshment style or the disengaged style. So for some people, they believe that in order to get their needs met, my cat is really wanting to get her needs met right now. Uh, what do you want? Are you making a bid for attachment needs? So... Um, for the uh, for some people, they decide, look, based on my past experience, I know that the only way that I can have some of my attachment needs met is if I sort of erase individuality, you know, i.e. enmeshment. And for other people, they come to the conclusion, the only way I can get my attachment needs met is to not really feel my attachment needs or to uh, not really look to my family to get my attachment needs met because it's just not going to happen. And that's the disengaged style. Uh, next question. How do children or adult children deal with frustration of their attempts at individuation? How do they act out? How do children or adult children deal with frustration of their attempts at individuation? How do they act out? Well, that's a great question. So um, it has to do with what I was talking about before is um, they will tend to be dependent on others. Um, they might be very preoccupied. So as they're um, you know, trying to individuate, they one will feel like they're they're not worthy of individuating, meaning that like like one of the things you might individuate is to uh, have a career of your own, to uh, have a home of your own, to have ideas of your own, to create something on your own. And the as the impulse happens, because we all have those kind of individuation, self-fulfilling kinds of impulses, there will be all these defenses around there that, that built up because of the past. Like, you know, there'll be pressures of like, you're not good enough. You know, who are you to do that? Or, you know, what if you make a mistake? You know, so all these uh, defenses will start kicking in to, to suppress this individuation effort and um, how they might act out might be to blame other people or to drink a lot or to um, ask a lot of advice of other people and then rebel against that advice. That's, that's sort of a dependent thing. Um, so there's a lot of different ways, uh, but that's what I'll say about that. What defense mechanism do enmeshed families engender in their parents and children? What defense mechanisms do enmeshed families engender in their parents and children? Yeah, so we, and I think I talked about that in the last question, is as you're growing up in an enmeshed family, you have needs for closeness that actually aren't being met because when you are forced to be uh, close, it's not actual love and closeness, right? So although 
enmeshed families might look like they're getting a lot of their attachment needs met, they're actually not at all because, or very little, definitely not optimally, because there's this really deep sense of like, um, I'm forced to be close and no one's really paying attention to me. I need to be this other person in this family in order to survive. And I need to suppress who I am in order to fit in here. And that they're not really loving me. They're loving this other version of me. And so uh, people in enmeshed families will often uh, leave the family with a sense that they weren't actually being loved. They, they don't really have that sense or they have just fleeting senses of it. So, you know, we need to develop defense mechanisms around that. Like, well, I'm not worthy of love um, or uh, I, I'm not good enough. So you might have a defense around like, I'm not good enough at things to uh, be expected to be on my own. Um, self-sabotage is, is another, you know, masochism is another defense mechanism that might kick in to push someone back to dependence and enmeshment. You ask another question here. How far back can the enmesh style go over the generations? Well, uh, in perpetuity, <laughs> um, typically you will see enmeshed styles be passed down through the generations for sure, but not always. But but you tend to see that, yeah, and disengagement and healthy adaptive in the same way. Now, I will say, uh, in case some people are like, wait a second, I'm confused. Um, no one, very few families that I've worked with are are 100% enmeshed or 100% disengaged or 100% healthy or adaptive. Uh, there's usually some mixture. So if you're th- out there thinking, well, I kind of feel like my family was kind of healthy, but also maybe kind of disengaged. Yeah, you can have both. Uh, no family is 100% one. Th- these categories, similar to attachment styles, are just guides in terms of how to evaluate you know, different situations. Um, you also ask famous patron Linden, can enmeshment be situationally functional in times of great stress and displacement, for example, famine, war, etc.? So uh, in one way of answering the question is yes, that enmeshment can be functional. Like in famine, you know, it's like, look, we don't have time for difference right now. We have to get along. Uh, you know, it, it's not a time for individuation. It's a time for survival. Uh, yeah, you could say that. But what I would say is that to follow the spirit of the concept is that it might uh, say you have a family that's healthy and you know adaptive, things are going well. Then all of a sudden there's war and famine. And say you have a 13-year-old in the family that you know wants to go out on the town, wants to stay out late, wants to date, wants to uh, you know do dangerous things in the city and put the family at danger. And the family is like, look, kid, you can't leave the house. You can't, uh, you know, you can't be individual right now. You have to be a part. We, we have to survive. You've got to, like, find food with the rest of us, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, an adaptive family would be able to communicate that to the teenager in a way that the teenager would understand. And the teenager would feel like, oh, I get it. Okay, fine. I will put aside my own sort of teenage wants right now to benefit the family because I, I, cause my uh, sort of individual 
person is being respected because my parents are explaining it to me in a way that is respectful to me and you know they're working with me on this and it's, okay I will I hand myself over to the family in that way we wouldn't call that I wouldn't call that enmeshment I would call that adaptive right so the boundaries are becoming uh, very diffuse in a flexible way because the family needs it in that moment and then as the famine and war goes away, then the family can start to reevaluate those uh, those uh, boundaries. Again, it's people often say like, "Well, are you know, are healthy families like always in the middle between disengagement and enmeshment?" And the answer is no. Uh, healthy, flexible, adaptive. The key word is adaptive. That healthy families can adapt to the situation. An example I, I frequently give is. When you fall in love with someone or you love someone and you're having like a love experience, like say with your spouse and you're cuddling and, you know, you're for half an hour, you're, you're just whispering in each other's ear and you're, you're just laying there in bed in the dark and there's not a lot of differentiation between you and them and um, you're not thinking about anything else and, you know, there's, there's just a lot of enmeshment. Well, um, you enjoy that enmeshment because that feels good to just kind of lose your individual self in the face of this other relationship. Um, and then when the cuddle times are over and you decide to hang out with uh, other people and you're, you separate, you can do that as well. And so there's flexibility in the boundary that can, quote unquote, look enmeshed, but it's not actually enmeshed. Enmeshment is diffuse boundaries all the time as a requirement, no flexibility. So if there's a war and the family needs to become enmeshed, well, then we're talking about an adapt, an adaptation to the situation that is functional, that when the stimulus of the war is over, they can adapt in a different way. Um, you also ask, can you talk a little bit about identified patients and scapegoats? Great question. So this is um, something that is related to family therapy and systems theory. Uh, it's not necessarily related to enmeshment. So uh, identified patients or the identified client is a family therapy idea in which we, and it's related to scapegoats because they often are the scapegoats, but let me just talk about the identified patient for a second. Well, let me talk about scapegoats first. So in family systems, when there is anxiety, when there's tension, again, because people aren't getting their needs met, and again, it's, it's these attachment needs that people are trying to get met, when there's, you know, every individual is just like, I don't know if anyone's going to love me, I, I feel insecure, uh, it's hard for me to feel like I can trust people, you know, I don't know if other people like me in this system, you know, it's, and this can be conscious or unconscious. When there's all that anxiety, again, of the attachment needs being met, um, and there's this prediction like things might go badly here, uh, systems will resort to certain uh, sort of patterns that will alleviate that stress. And one of the, one of the patterns that a family system will and this isn't this isn't just family systems. This is all kinds. Of, this is like a, you know, a sports team or your system at the office or a political system. We will look towards a scapegoat to scapegoat and to blame for all of our problems. And what it does is it relieves a lot of tension. It doesn't solve the problem, but it relieves a lot of tension. So, for example, you have you have two parents, you have two kids, and 
everyone feels like they're not really getting their needs met uh, attachment-wise between them. The parents haven't had sex in three years, and um, they've had some fights recently. The kids don't really feel like the parents really love them. The kids are insecure at school. The parents are feeling like they're failures as parents, and this is all kind of going in their background just all the time. And there's no release for the tension. Then all of a sudden, the 14-year-old girl, uh, she's caught smoking a cigarette at school. And then now the family, including the other sibling, is all uh, up in arms about that. How could you do that to yourself? Smoking a cigarette at school, what's wrong with you? Well, what's happening now is the parents and the sibling are now bonded in their attack of the 14-year-old daughter. And what this does is it it creates some togetherness, some closeness. There's there's some contact. Even for the 14-year-old scapegoat, what she's experiencing now is uh, some vicarious uh, pleasure by seeing her parents uh, bonded against her. There's a, there's a sense of safety and security of like, oh, I was worried about my parents' marriage. Now they seem really close. This, again, a lot of this is unconscious. And so the system learns, hmm, when there's a scapegoat, things are a little less bad. And the scapegoat uh, unconsciously volunteers for this role. So the the scapegoat is elected by the system to play this role, but the the scapegoat also volunteers for, for the overall benefit to the system, which they benefit from. So then the girl decides, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to smoke a cigarette more often. I'm going to start smoking pot. I'm going to I'm going to have my grades go down. I'm going to start stealing uh makeup from Rite Aid. I'm going to start saying, you know, some F-bombs at home. I'm going to steal money from my younger brother. Now, from the outside, you're like, what's wrong with this kid? This kid's rebellious, blah blah blah, it's going through a phase, who, you know, whatever. But when a family systems therapist looks at this, you're like, you know what? How did this pattern begin? And did the family undifferentiation or the enmeshment or whatever, the lack of attachment needs being met, did that lead to the development of this routine of the scapegoat? You know, two years later, the 16-year-old girl is you know, she's breaking laws, she might be stealing cars or whatever, you know, she's doing empirically bad things. But how did the whole pattern begin is what the family systems person is looking at. And traditionally, what, you know, at least societally, what we do is we get the 16 year old in individual therapy, and we say, you know, what's wrong with you? How come you're doing that? Or you send the 16 year old to a boot camp. What a family systems person says is no, Let's look at the family system overall. What's going on here? How did we get here? Uh, uh, how do we change the the scapegoat into someone who is actually uh, reframing it to be a service for the family? How do we bring people together? How do we get people to meet each other's needs so there's no need for a scapegoat? Because if you if you bring people together in an, in an alternative way, in a way that's more functional and more adaptive then there's no need for the scapegoat to volunteer to play that role. And there's no need to elect that person and sort of force them into that role. Because not only does the individual kind of volunteer, but the the rest of the family will kind of force it in. And it's very interesting to see this when you study families is you'll see a, a family just frame everything bad about that person, even though the sibling might be doing similar things, not always. So, that's a scapegoat. And then when that family would come into therapy, the family therapist would 
actually, at least in their mind, but maybe even to the family, say, that's the identified patient because that because the family has identified that scapegoat as the patient. But we know as family therapists, everyone is the patient. Everyone is participating in that pattern. Uh, you have another question here, famous patron Linden. Does enmeshment encourage particular cognitive strategies, uh, CBT analysis, etc.? Does enmeshment encourage particular cognitive strategies? Um, yeah, I think I've probably answered that already. Um, you also ask, could you talk more about how enmeshment plays out when a parent attaches to a child? So again, it's hard to generalize because so many, you know, we're talking probably about a third of the families on the planet. So I don't know how many, it's probably, that's probably like a billion families. It's hard to generalize to a billion families. Um, but, you know, so just to maybe speak anecdotally. So, you know, how enmeshment plays out when a parent attaches to a child. So the child and parent both want to attach to each other, right? And so the parent will, uh, there's a lot of normal, so enmeshed and disengaged families, it's not like they're in a constant state of dysfunction. There's there's a fair amount of times where it's functional. It's just when anxiety happens, when the, the dysfunction kind of kicks in. So say, you know, you're a mother and you have uh, an enmeshed uh, sort of defense. And so, you you know, you have this notion that individuation leads to rejection. And so as a mother... Uh, and you're parenting your seven-year-old son. And, uh, you know, there's good exchanges. There's uh, love. There's attunement at times. But when the kid starts to disagree or when the kid says, um, I don't want to do that right now. I don't want to pick up my toys. I don't, you know, I don't think the way you do. I don't want to go to church. Um, I don't like what you made for dinner then the parent will uh, not react well, let's just say, will not react functionally to that behavior in the child. But in terms of attaching, um, uh, let's see, the answer a little bit more specifically. So to the, atta- to the enmeshed parent, so the, the mother, so just going off of this uh, example again, the mother grew up in a family that was enmeshed, and so she developed an enmeshed style herself. And so as she uh, parents her own kids, she has an enmeshed style. And what this means is that she's going to uh, not be, – because when she grew up, she didn't get a lot of actual love. Because remember, enmeshment often doesn't involve actual love. It, it, it involves sort of conditional love, if you will. And so that mother has a sense of like, well, the way you love someone is through conditions. And I was never given unconditional love, so I don't even know what that is. So um, the mother might put a lot of messaging consciously, unconsciously around, there are conditions to my love for you. So that's one way of putting the attachment. Again, it's hard to generalize. Okay, uh, you have another question. What is the relationship between enmeshment and parentification? So another excellent integration of ideas here. Parentification is the process the, of, in a family in which a child is elevated in terms of their role inappropriately beyond their years. So 
you will have a, often it's the oldest child, but not always, will become uh, another parent to the younger siblings or even a companion to the parents or even a parent to the parents. Oftentimes, if you you have a parent who is suffering from addiction, um, one of the children is elevated to be a, to take care of that parent. And the relationship between enmeshment and parentification is that uh, when you have enmeshment, you're more likely to have parentification. Um, now, what I will say is that there's nothing wrong with a child being elevated that way, but again, it has to be flexible and it has to be responsive and attuned to that child's needs. Um, my older brother and sister, for example, um, took care of me because I'm, I'm, I'm seven years younger than them. And my older brother and sister were kind of like parents to me. So my older brother and sister were kind of elevated at times. But uh, I would hope that they were given the chance to not play that role when they didn't want to, when they say wanted to just be a kid or they wanted to go play with other people and not have to take care of me, that uh, flexibility is the key. So it's not, we can't just look at a behavior and say, oh, that kid's parentified. We have to look at like um, how flexible is it and how responsive is the system to the child's needs. Um, Having said that, parentification can absolutely happen in disengaged families as well. So if I thought anecdotally, I would say that enmeshed families are probably slightly more likely to involve parentification, but parentification, rigid parentification can happen in any dysfunctional family. Your last question here is, what are the benefits or rewards of enmeshment to those suffering from it? Interesting. What are the rewards of enmeshment? Um, I would say none. (laughs) Uh, because there's there's a there's another version of the benefits in close families that don't carry with it the negative things. Um, well, no, that's not true. Uh, benefits. I would say that the benefits are um, there can be an a sort of identity in an enmeshed family that can be uh, beneficial, like. When you come from an enmeshed family, a lot of times the enmeshed family will kind of think of themselves as like, you know, it's us against the world or no other family is as close as us. And so there's a there's a certain benefit to that identity, I suppose, um, that some pride in the fact that you have a lot of involvement and that you can fight and still, you know, see each other uh, at holidays. Um, another benefit, I suppose, would be that people in enmeshed families tend to notice other people more in the same way that kind of preoccupied attached people do, you know, that's sort of a skill, um, you know, that lends itself towards people skills. You might have more people skills if you come from an enmeshed family, Um, maybe, but you know, it's hard to generalize that because, but again, if you're in a close, healthy, adaptive family And you can have all those things too. You can have a lot of attunement and noticing of other people's feelings. You can have a lot of pride of identity of closeness in that family. Um, So, you know, uh, it's hard to say anything uniquely beneficial about being from an enmeshed family. All right. Well, I answered all of your questions, famous patron Lyndon. You're a very smart fella to even ask those questions. 
And people out there, let me know what you think. Uh, did you come in from an enmeshed family? Comment below if you're on YouTube and chime in here. Um, you know, did you learn anything here? Is this old news to you? Uh, what are your experiences? Did you come from a disengaged family? Did you come from a healthy adaptive family? You know, let people know what that's like. And everyone, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do.